So let's be turning in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. As we often do in January, we take some time to focus on some very practical matters for us as a church because of recent events in our church of things like looking at a building space for ourselves, very practical things. It's good for us to return and talk about who we are and what it is that we're doing. We began a couple of weeks ago by looking at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 and talking about the goal of the church, which is to glorify God. Last week, we talked about the identity of the church, that we are to be a unified whole. And the reason that we entitled that teaching time that way is because we believe that as the world looks at us as a unified whole, which is unique, only Christ can accomplish that, that this helps them to see that we are, in fact, God's people. And perhaps under God's providence, and I think we could say far more than perhaps as we talk about things like unity, never before in the life of our church has this been more important than right now. So as we function together in humble unity, pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we glorify God. So the end of chapter 3 sets for us the parameters of all of this. The parameters of this is that we should always be pursuing the glory of God. That's why we exist. The very fabric of the cosmos hums with the reality that there is a God and that He is glorious and that no one and no thing compares to Him. The beauty of this particular creation of this earth, this earth that fell under the dominion of sin because of the rebellion of mankind, that the beauty of all of that is that through redemption, He is bringing us back to the original design. So if all of the cosmos, if all of creation, the the span of the universe declares to us the glory of God, that there is one true God and He made all things for His glory, the fall calls that into question. Can we as fallen rebels really taste and see this glorious one for all that He is? Redemption answers that. Redemption answers that with yes, We can be renewed to that. And as a redeemed people, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 6, we can pursue Him together in unity. So, God made everything for His glory, but is restoring His image bearers, we His people, as a local expression in this church. He is restoring us to that end, that goal of glorifying Him and enjoying Him. And now today in verses 7 through 16, we're brought into more detail about what that looks like. We are to pursue the glory of God through growing in Christ. So today we will talk about the mission of the church. It was appropriate that Don gave an update on our perspective on global missions today and prayed for that because that's what we care the most about. In fact, the mission of our church is that we exist to glorify God through the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, we will seek to produce maturing disciples who will be responsible to model and proclaim Christ in their communities and around the world. This brings together all three weeks of our short time together in Ephesians before we return to our exposition of Genesis. 
that God is glorified most when disciples are formed and when those disciples enjoy Him. And then as disciples, we seek to help other disciples come to those same realities. So, God is glorified most through reproductive disciple-making. That's why we exist. So, we're not here to play. Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy each other. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life, but we're not here to play. We're serious about what we do here. You guys know as well as I do, there's a whole, thing as a, there's a whole lot of things as a church we probably don't do that well. And frankly, I don't care that much about that stuff. That might really bother you. I think most of you are here because it doesn't bother you that much, though, because there's a few things we want to do really well. And when it really comes down to it, if, if we can pursue the glory of God by seeing disciples made, then at the end of the day, when we're all really old and we're all like in an assisted living facility somewhere sucking like pudding out of a straw, we will know that this life has been worth it. That's why we're here. We're here to make disciples. And I want you to be asking yourself this question prayerfully as we go through these verses here today. In, in what way are you engaged in this mission? In one way or another, we are all to be engaged in the formation of disciples. That means in one way or another, we should all be being affected by one another toward our own growth, and we should all be affecting each other for their growth. So, so what role are you playing in this mission? Are you personally engaged in affecting other people for their growth in Christ? Let's read the verses again that are in front of us today, and then that'll set us a stage that we can give a very brief and gentle and simple outline. Then we'll talk about some application about how we go forward from this. Again, this is God's Word. But grace was given to each one of us, verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's all of us. We're all included now. Therefore, it says, the Scriptures say, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And saying, He, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? It's probably speaking of His incarnation when He came to the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things as a result of the end of His resurrection going back to be with the Father. And as a result, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm going to put in front of you just a very simple outline on the screen. First of all, in verses 7 through 14, I think that Paul is saying to us that Christ has gifted the church with leaders for her growth. Paul refers to a psalm and in that he tweaks the psalm a bit, and he says that when Christ ascended after His crucifixion and resurrection, 
He did something on behalf of the church. He didn't just come here on some sort of rescue mission and check out and say, you guys figure this out and do your thing, and I'll come back and check on you at some point. The beauty of the work of Christ is that the implications of the gospel are ongoing. That is to say, God had an eternal plan to bring to himself lost people from all over the globe throughout the generations of mankind. We saw that back in chapter 1 as we referenced it last week, that God chose people for himself before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. That is to say, God decided that he would save all kinds of humans and all kinds of ages from all kinds of people groups, that his grace might be praised, that we might enjoy how great he is in his grace. And that continues to this day because Christ did not just die and then was resurrected and then go back to heaven and then stop. Christ's work of redemption is ongoing even to this day. And we know that because Paul tells us in this text that he didn't just check out. He gave the tools, he gave the means to the church whereby she can bring him glory. So let's think about this for just a minute. The Trinity made the cosmos for the Trinity's glory. But humans turned from God and became dead, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2. They became children of wrath. But God didn't leave it that way. The Father and the Son had made a plan before the world was ever created that the Son would enact a rescue mission to bring some of the rebels back to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them, but instead taking the penalty of their trespasses upon Himself. And then he enacted the plan. He came. He kept all the laws of God. And he was crucified, not for his own sins, because he was a perfect law keeper. He was sinless. But he died to bear our punishment. He became our substitute. And if we will place our faith and confidence in him, he takes the penalty of our sin and we receive his righteousness But he doesn't just leave it like that. One day he will return and he will make us completely new. But until then, he has already begun the restoration process. And he has given the church all the gifts that she needs whereby we might find that restoration process to be ongoing. In very simple terms, we can say that the church is all about disciple-making, helping people grow to be more like Christ, to worship God in the way that He originally designed and that now He has purchased back to Himself through the work of Christ. But again, it's not all up to us because He's given us the means whereby that restoration process can can keep going. So we are charged with the responsibility of helping one another grow in our likeness to Christ. But at the end of the day, Christ is the one who's given the gifts, and Christ is the one who administrates the gifts. So God made the world for His glory, and He's restoring it for His glory, but He's making sure that it happens. It's interesting here in these verses before us today 
the emphasis in Paul's writing is really not so much on what we should do. And we're going to tease out some application here at the end of our time together today. But if, if you're looking at this kind of purely grammatically, primarily what Paul is doing here is giving you promises. And there's beauty in that because it means that you're not all on your own. Disciple-making is difficult, but the reality is we are not left alone. Christ is with us, and He helps us. So, the first thing that we see in these first sets of verses is that Christ has gifted the church with leaders for her growth. And then secondly, we'll go back to the verses in just a moment and explain them in more detail. We see that Christ receives glory when the church grows in loving unity. What takes us back to the end of chapter 3? Why is this world here? And more particularly, why is the church here? Why has God designed the world in which the church will exist? Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Again, at the end of chapter 3, He's done this, that God might be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So, Christ receives glory when the church grows through the gifts that He has given let's talk about some of the details of the verses briefly before we get into our more applicational time at the end. You notice in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us. Now, there's different kinds of grace. There's different functions of those different kinds of graces that he intends. But Paul is arguing here for, for unity. He does this elsewhere in his writings and passages like Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's at least in those three different letters to three different geographical regions to which he had traveled. Why do you think he did that? I think this clarifies us to us the notion that, that the church will always struggle with unity because we're all pretty selfish people. So, the idea here is you each have gifts that have been given to you, but the struggle very often is how do we use those gifts together in harmony for the glory of Christ? Because what we typically do is we forget that the gift is a gift, and then we think more about our giftedness, and then we use it toward our own ends. So, very often what we end up doing is we start worrying about whether or not people recognize our giftedness, are being jealous of other people's giftedness, forgetting the very fact that these things are gifts from Jesus for us to use for His glory. And then all that giftedness, which is really the wrong way to talk about this, becomes a means of division. We saw in our time together last week in the first six verses of chapter 4 that we're to be humble, we're to be gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eagerly, verse 3, seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That means we've all got to be really deliberate about that. But one of the ways that we can really disrupt unity is if we focus way more upon our giftedness, which again, to be clear, is a bad way of thinking about this, rather than the fact that we have been given gifts to use for others' good and the glory of Christ. So, in verse 7, we, we are given gifts, and these gifts are given by grace. So, you've got one or more. 
there are places in the Bible like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere where you can learn about what some of those gifts are, but I don't think any of the lists are exhaustive. Sometimes people wonder what they're good at, what their gifts are. This is one of the reasons, I think, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that God has given leaders in the church to help identify some of those things. But I think we all have a kind of a basic notion of what we're good at. You all have something that God has given to you to use for His glory. Very often, these are amplifications of gifts that you had prior to conversion. That is to say, based upon your personality and how you were brought up, there are certain things you're probably relatively good at. Once you are indwelt by the Spirit, born again and sealed to God by the Spirit, often those gifts are amplified that you might use them for God's purposes, for His glory. This means that as image bearers, in all ways, one way or another, we, we have things that God has done in us to reflect His great glory. But especially as we are restored into the image of Christ by the Spirit, that giftedness as image bears is amplified and we can now use it for His glory. So Christ has given the gifts. Paul goes on to talk about more of this in verse 8 when he says that when Christ ascended after His work of redemption, after His crucifixion and resurrection, He continued His ministry. So, in other words, Christ didn't just spend 33 years here on the earth and minister to His people by dying for them, taking the punishment they deserved, and then rising from the grave again and going back to be with the Father and taking some sort of like long-time sabbatical until He comes back and does it again. No, Christ's ministry is not sort of bookended. Christ's ministry is, is eternal. Christ has been serving His people from the foundation of the earth, and He will serve them until the end. He serves them now, and He gives them the gifts that they need. This idea in verse 8 of Christ leading a host of captives probably means that He overcame evil forces. But in doing so, because Christ can do more than one thing at a time, He not only overcame His foes, he took care of his people. I almost say that he took care of his bros, but that would have been really corny. So I won't. In verse 9, it says that he ascended. But that means that he also came. I mean, you know, you can't ascend unless you descended first. He came to the earth in the incarnation. He humbled himself. He himself was God's greatest gift to humanity. But in accomplishing his work of redemption, he then finished it by going to be with the Father. But again, the ministry is ongoing because he gifts the church, not just at one point, but throughout generations. And we see this in verse 11 because originally, at the foundation of the church, he gave apostles and prophets, people like John and James and Matthew and others. They gave prophets early on in the foundation of the church to, to help the church know who she was to be, to finish the written Word of God so we would have a record of what He wanted us to know and understand. So probably verse 11, the beginning, when He speaks of the prophets and the apostles, He's speaking of early first century foundational nature of the church. The, the church got the right start. 
The evangelists probably transcend generations. Evangelists in our New Testament time were basically church planters. They, they took the gospel to places where it had not yet gone, and then churches grew up. But that happens today as well. It's one of the reasons why we learn about people groups all around the world, like in Vietnam and, and other places where we send money and send people. And we want the gospel to take root there. We want local assemblies of churches to grow. But generally speaking, what those evangelists do as those churches grow is pastors are raised up, pastors who are teachers. So, first and foremost here in this text, what Paul is saying is that Christ left gifts for the church, in particular leaders. So, He's gifted all of us, but the thing that Paul focuses on most of all in these first verses of our text today is given her leaders. Now, it's a little uncomfortable, frankly, for me to talk about that, but it's here in God's Word, so I can't run away from it. It's one of the reasons why He's given the structure of leadership in a church. Very often, and probably most often, it should be that, that your leaders are the ones who are the most mature among you. They should have been converts for quite a long time. In fact, in, if, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul is talking about the kind of character that leaders are supposed to have, he says that they can't be recent converts. They, they should have known God for quite a long time. And not only that, they should have studied the things of God. And not only that, they should care for the people of God. And what are they to do? Verse 12. Well, they're to equip the saints. That's mostly why we're here. That's why at the end of the day, your elders should be your friends. We should love you. We should care for you. And we want to do that as best we can. But at the same time, we're here to do more than that. We are here to hold your hand when you're hurting. We're here to laugh with you and cry with you. But our primary function in all of that is to help you grow. It's to equip you. We joked earlier, or at least I did, that there's a lot of things we probably don't do that well around here. But one of the reasons that that we don't focus on a whole lot of external peripheral things is because we put so much focus on equipping. That's why we teach the Bible the way we do. It's why we emphasize discipleship the way that we do in our small groups and in one-on-one or one-on-two or three kinds of settings. We, we take that really seriously. And when you do that and you do it all the time, there's not a lot of time for other stuff. You see, we never want to confuse you with what it is we're here to do. To use an overused cliche, we never want the tail wagging the dog here. We're not here primarily to be a collection of people that just hangs out together and wears the same clothes and goes to the same conferences and listens to Chris Tomlin and has like Jesus stickers on the back of our car. All that's well and good, and if you want to do that, that's great. I'm all for that. But it can never take precedence over the primary thing, which is that we are growing in Christ. And primarily, that's why He's given you the leaders He's given you. But to encourage you, specifically you, I know you see that, and I know you want that. I hang out with pastors a lot. 
God has allowed me to be in, in uh, leadership in our gospel coalition here in our city, so I get to hang out with pastors a lot. And one of the questions I get a lot is, what's your church like? Now, very often when people ask that question, they, they mean, like, how big is your church? And, you know, like, what do we have to brag about? You know, we're, we're no mega church. But I just, I skip that. I know often that's what they're asking. I don't even answer that question. And the thing that I go to right away is that I know you love God, and I know that you take your faith seriously. That is, that is holistically true about you as a church. Ministry's hard. It's, it's, it's hard work to be an elder. But for the most part, almost all the time, you make it a joy for us because you take your faith seriously. I had somebody email me after the service last week, somebody who's sitting here today, and I, I won't embarrass her on the left side of the building toward the back. And I'll, just, I'll be, that's as specific as I'll get. But she said, you yeah, this is a really unique group of people. And I'm paraphrasing, but, but this church takes their faith seriously. And it's so, it's so encouraging to hear other people say that, but it's true. So, so God has given elders to this church. There's six of us. And he's charged us very seriously with equipping the body to do what we're supposed to do. We do that through study. We do that through spending time with you one-on-one. We do that through talking about you. We, we have meetings every month, two long meetings every month, where we, we go through the church role and we talk about who's involved and how they're doing. It's never a gossip session, but it's how do we keep our eyes on the people of this church and, and how are they doing? And generally speaking, as we go through that list, it's always super encouraging to see the trajectory of growth. And then when we see where there, there's a lack of health, we want to come alongside those people and help them grow. But it's interesting here, as, as we help you, you then are able to do the work. I mean, that's what Paul's saying in verse 12. We are to equip you to do the work of ministry that all of us might grow in Christ. So, so we do our job. The elders should be doing our job. And by God's grace, I think that characterizes us to the, for the most part. We're to be equipping you to continue to do that. It's reproductive. We've used this analogy before, but, but too often in Western evangelicalism, our churches are like upside-down pyramids. You're thinking about that for just a minute, right? Architecturally, a, a building like that, a structure like that cannot stand. Churches very often build up on the personality of a few. And as long as a few have the charisma and time and energy and abilities, that structure may teeter for a while without falling. But the slightest provocation will knock that over. From the very beginning, we've wanted to build our church like a traditional pyramid with a broad foundation. Now, there are some leaders, and they're doing their job, but as the work trickles downward, the base broadens, and as the pyramid grows taller, the base continues to broaden. That's the metaphor for what reproductive disciple-making looks like. We are to do our job as elders to help you grow, to point out areas of your life that perhaps do not please Christ. Then to come alongside you and help you know how to do that. And then as you do that, you get to help others do that. So we equip you to do the work of ministry, and then we're all in it together. 
That means that you don't just get to say, well, the elders will go make disciples. That's not what this text is saying. The elders are helping you grow in your discipleship so you can help others do the same. I have sat with a number of you through the years in discipleship, and I think probably without exception, all of you who have spent specific time with me will testify to the fact that one of the first things I say to you when we start meeting is, we are not done here until you can go do this with somebody else. And it's a joy now to see so many of you who are now second-generation disciple-makers. And it should be that all of us get to that point, and then eventually we'll have third-generation disciples, people who have come to Christ and grown in their faith, and then they're making disciples, and so forth and so on. Of course, the greatest resource we have is, is behind us right now, in our nursery, in our three kids' church classes, where we're trying to raise up another generation of disciple-makers who will do it, by God's grace, even better than us. From cradle to grave, we care about disciple-making here. We want to release this great potential of our greatest resource in those classes behind us right now so that for all of their days, they will treasure Jesus supremely and they will live to help others treasure Jesus supremely. Your elders here do not every single moment of every single day treasure Jesus supremely, but we're trying And as we're growing in that, we want to help you do that, and we want you to help each other to do that so that collectively, holistically, we are known for that, not for our glory, but again, as the context demands, for the glory of Jesus. What's this growth look like? What's it headed toward? Well, verse 13, we're to all attain to the unity of the faith. That's doctrine. Doctrine's not a bad thing. Doctrine's a necessary thing. If you don't have some parameters for what you believe, people get to believe whatever they want to believe. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Not only are we to grow in our understanding of truth, we're to grow in our understanding of Jesus himself. Which means that you can never over-talk Jesus. Should it really be, I'm going to be a little hyperbolic here for a minute, But should it really be that we can go through a day and not talk about Jesus Christ if we're his followers? I mean, really. And I don't want you to, like, force it. You don't go around, like, with a little Jesus chant, Jesus, 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 you know, like, that doesn't count. But if you love the Savior and you realize the benefits that you have in being united to him, shouldn't that just spill out of you all the time? If you like to shoot guns, you talk about guns, and you post them on Facebook. If you like to dress your little girl up at Easter because you think that's awesome as like a Western evangelical, you talk about it, and you put it on Facebook. And I, I love guns, and I love girls. It's great, okay? Um, if, if you love food, then you talk about food a lot, and you Post it on Facebook. I mean, this is what you do. The things you care about, you talk about. But it's the very foundational nature of our existence and of our hope both in the here and in the hereafter is Jesus. Shouldn't that spill out of us? And what Paul is saying here is that we shouldn't just know doctrine generally. We should, we should really focus on what we know about Jesus because he is the foundation of our hope. 
And frankly, you cannot read the Bible if you're reading it properly and not see Jesus everywhere. Because every story, every verse in one way or another can quickly be brought back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, what is the goal of the elders, the pastors and teachers? It's to help you grow in your understanding of truth and specifically about Jesus that you might be mature. Middle of verse 13. What's that maturity measured by? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is to say, until you are fully like Jesus, the discipleship process has not reached its terminus. It has not culminated. It has not reached its end. So this means that there will always be a need for elders, and there will always be a need for an ever-broadening base of disciple-makers who are growing in their knowledge of truth, specifically about Jesus, and are growing in their maturity to look like Jesus. So we're not, we're not aiming at something empty. We're not just spitting in the wind here. We have something to aim at. And as we learn about Jesus and see what he was like, we have, we have something to aim toward. What's the purpose of all this, verse 14? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There will be things inevitably, inexorably, and all the time it's going to be coming, that will seek to trip you up. It's just going to happen. Let me give you some examples. I'll start with with moral examples first. It's amazing how, how the church, how God's people can excuse bad morality. When I was a kid, we had a couple of families in our church and um, you'll never know these people. I don't think they were Christians, and by the story I'm getting ready to tell you, I think you'll agree with me, so you'll never run into them. But at one point, these, these two couples, I guess who hung out quite a bit, came to my dad, who was a pastor, and he, they asked my dad, would it be okay with you if we switched partners? Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, I didn't just hear what you said, because, because I was checking guns and girls and food on Facebook. So stop doing that for just a minute, and I'll restate what I just said. These two couples came to my dad, and they said, Pastor, would it be okay if we switched partners? Like, I don't, I don't like my husband as much, but I really like him, and she and I have gotten together, and she likes my husband better, so well, that would be great, right? Now, what kind of gall does it take to actually muster up enough courage to come ask that question? But somewhere along the line, the morality had gone so off the tracks that they actually got to the point that they went to their pastor teacher and asked that question. Lest you wonder what the outcome of that was, he said no when they left the church. But you look at that and you say, how can that be? This wasn't a conservative evangelical church. Not long after I finished seminary, I was teaching in a church uh, a series on discipleship, as a matter of fact. And... um, One particular week, I had referenced the fact, and Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ humbled himself when he took on flesh, but he was never less than fully God. He was both God and man all at the same time. Well, I was there for the next week. This was like a nine-week series or something like that. And this old guy cornered me 
And um, this was like five minutes before the, I was supposed to teach. And he said, I just want you to know that what you preached last week was heresy. And I was like, what do you mean? And he, he said, he said when, when Jesus became a man, he was no longer God anymore. And I had like five minutes to like deal with this dude and then go preach again. And so I refuted him a little bit. But what this guy was saying to me was, was outright heresy, like stuff that the church dealt with 1,600 years ago. Like that stuff is settled. I went to the pastor not long after that, and I said, I just want you to know, there's a guy in your church, and he's a heretic. And the guy looked at me, the pastor looked at me, and he's like, well, it's not that big of a deal. And I thought to myself, so you're saying to me that it's okay for somebody in your church to not believe in the deity of Christ and be a member there. He's like, yeah, this is kind of a small deal. We don't, we don't really strain at gnats here. I don't think I taught there after that series. And these are just small examples. I could give you more. The reality is we will always be tested by winds that seek to blow us over. You see, when it really comes down to it, I don't think Satan cares that much that we're religious. I think, frankly, he likes religion. That's not to say religion's bad. I think religion has its place, if you use that term sort of generically. In fact, I think Satan likes organized religion to a degree because it's very numbing. In fact, if you look at most Protestant denominations today, ones that arose out of the Protestant Reformation that were very uh, convinced of biblical truth, almost every single mainline denomination in the West does not believe the gospel anymore. If they were to be sitting among us today, first of all, they would never come, but, but if they were, they would think that we're absolute nuts. Satan doesn't hate religion. I think, frankly, he likes it a lot because it's a way of making people feel comfortably numb. But brothers and sisters, this is why we take so much effort in teaching the Word of God and spending time with one another and helping one another pursue Christ because we know there are dangers all over the place. Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul, later on in Ephesians chapter 6, Don referenced this earlier, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And Satan is our great foe who is firing fiery darts at us, Paul says in that chapter. We want you to recognize truth, and in so doing, you will recognize error, both in your morality and in your faith. And in doing so, then you can grow. But there will always be things that come along that would seek to disrupt that growth for the glory of Christ. And so, God has given you leaders to help you with that. And then as you grow in that, again, the base broadens, disciple makers mature and grow so that we can all keep doing that work so that more and more disciples might grow for the glory of Christ. But as we see again at the end of the chapter, what's the, what's the trajectory of all this? The trajectory of all this is that Christ receives glory. We're to grow up into Him, into the head. He's the leader. 
And as we grow and as we look like him, Jesus gets glory. You see, at the end of the day, this is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about the other elders. It's not really ultimately about your glory. Now, it is about us growing and benefiting from the gifts that Christ gives to the church, but the gifts have been given by Christ to the church for His own glory. This ties together the end of chapter 3 with all these discussions about unity and growth. What's the trajectory? The trajectory is toward Christ, that Christ might be glorified. And He is glorified most when we grow together in loving unity. Again, he gave the, the gifts of the leaders to the church that they might grow and use their gifts. And then, verse 16, when the whole body, elders and laity alike, are using their gifts, it's joined and held together by Christ because he's the one who gave the gifts and he's the one who holds us together. And as each part, each gifted part, you and me, are doing our thing, are, are completing our role, the body is in harmony. To illustrate this, whenever you have a toothache, something, frankly, pretty small, it's amazing how agonizing that can be. You generally, all of you, feels terrible to further anatomical illustration just a bit. If you have a bum right ankle, but you still have to function and work in life, you will keep walking, but you'll compensate with your other leg. And you might end up with a a hip injury in your left leg. I say all that to say that when one of us is hurting, it affects the whole. I'm going to go negative and then I'll go positive. If you're not using your gifts for the glory of Christ, if you're being selfish, if you're being lazy, if you're being lustful and removing yourself from the good of the whole, you're going to damage the whole. So, brother or sister, if you are not following Jesus as you should today, if you are not discharging your gifts for the good of another, you are hurting the whole, and therefore you are not glorifying Christ. So not only are you not glorifying Christ, we're not glorifying Christ like we should. So examine yourself today. Now the positive side of this. When a brother or sister is hurting, a unified whole feels that. Again, very appropriate under God's providence that we talk about this today. This means that when one is hurting, and I don't mean being disobedient, I mean that they're in pain for one reason or another, we come alongside them. And we trust the head to make us whole. We have plenty, of course, in our church today who are like that. And those, perhaps, who are a bit more well right now, a bit more at peace, we come alongside the ones who are hurting and we help them because we are a whole. We are not a loose confederation of mavericks Paul picked this analogy of the body on purpose. It is intimate. So when we talk about things like being a church family or being a body, we're not just throwing out silly cliches. We're using 
intimate analogies to draw out certain conclusions. We are bound together under Christ, and we need one another. What happens whenever we function together in unity under the sovereign care of Christ who's equipped us with what He wants us to have? What happens? Well, we grow, and we're built up in love. Paul's primary focus on growth here is not numerical, although that comes. Paul's primary focus on growth is is about quality. It has been said that too often our churches are asking the question, how many people are present, when the right question instead is, what are those people like? Now, should we care how many people are present? Of course we should. We want to grow. We want to reach our community, and as we continue to grow as a church, we want that to be the case. Brothers and sisters, primarily we should always be asking the question, what are the people that are part of this church like? Are they growing in Christ for His glory, and are they using their gifts for His glory and the good of their brothers and sisters? Shouldn't it be that holistically, by by way of measuring concentration, that we should be known as a church of people who really love Jesus and who help others to do that. That's what I want us to be known by at the end of the day. And if we can live to make others glad in God, we will have lived well. How about some application now? First, we all must maintain humble gratitude to Christ for His gifts. Whatever gift you have, whether that's service or giving or teaching or whatever your gift may be, you did not drum it up. You did not manufacture it, and it's not for you. It's for Jesus, and it's for your brothers and your sisters. So, if you struggle with pride because you don't feel like your gifts are recognized or employed properly, it's probably a discussion you should have with the elders. Maybe we don't employ you in the way that you should be, and we'll be happy to hear you on that. But be careful, because it's amazing how we can take gifts, which are for the good of other people and for the glory of the giver, and we can use them to just be little ways of manipulating other people to love us. So, if you struggle with pride in regard to your gifts, and I've never met a disciple who doesn't, present company included, you fight this by praying. Maintain humble gratitude to Christ. Pray about that. Secondly, Our elders must faithfully and wisely discharge their responsibilities for shepherding the church body. I speak to a few of you now. A couple of the elders are not in here right now. Guys, we don't get to stop. This is our responsibility all the time. To know God. To love God. To be mastered by His Word under the influence of His Spirit. And to use our time and our talents, and all of our resources for the good of the body. That's why we're here. We're here to pour ourselves out for the glory of Jesus and for the good of our sheep. And you, as those who follow us, you have to pray for us because it's not easy. It's hard. So we ask you humbly, pray for us. Pray that we will do this well. We ask that you follow us when we do it well. I don't ask that in a vacuum. The Scriptures 
implore you to do that. We have to give an account at the end of the day for how we have shepherded you. It's always easier to shepherd people who care about their own growth. And again, to encourage you, we see that here and we're so grateful. But maintain that. Pray for us. Thirdly, we all must pursue collective growth. We don't want a half-lame body. We don't want to be dragging a lame left leg. We don't want a diseased appendix or however else you want to illustrate this. We want the body to be whole and well. Now, when there is a schism in the body, when there is a problem or a lack of health in the body, we are to come alongside that part of the body and help it. But all of us collectively must be pursuing growth. You don't, you don't get to, to check out on this one. We're, we're all together in this. Fourthly, there are real dangers about which you must be on guard. So it's, it's kind of like dangers lurking all over the place. And at the end of the day, are, are we the kind of people that are going to be discerning enough to recognize the dangers? Do we know truth enough? Have we been taught well enough? Have we, have we listened well enough? Have we explored truth well enough on our own that we can recognize the dangers for what they are? We, we can sniff them out. We can listen carefully or peer over into the edge of our, of our existence and see them coming or hear them coming. Can we do that? This is why doctrine is so important. Doctrine is not something about which we should be indifferent. Doctrine helps us to recognize truth and error. And brothers and sisters, there are plenty of things which would seek to disrupt us, both morally and doctrinally. So brothers, sisters, be on guard. Be on guard for one another. Paul talks in this text about speaking the truth in love. Whenever you, whenever you help your brother or sister, always do it with humility. Always do it with love. But do it nonetheless. And if your brother or sister comes to you in love and expresses concern over some moral or doctrinal matter, listen up especially if these are the kind of people that you know are growing, who, who themselves are following Jesus. And if He has given them discernment enough to recognize something in your life that perhaps might be out of order, listen up well. We're not trying to encourage some sort of like spiritual Gestapo here, but at the same time, we are to watch out for one another, speaking the truth in love. So, I'm not on this hike of life, this sojourn, my journey all alone. You're with me. We have people who are watching all around the path, helping us see danger which could trip us up. And fifthly, and lastly, the goals of our discipleship must always be the glory of Christ and mutual love. What's the purpose of this whole section of Scripture? Paul wants the church to glorify Jesus. And as we grow, we do but He wants us to love one another. That's why at the end of verse 16, the growth results in love. So, if we're not characterized by that, what do we have? Paul talks about this elsewhere. It's interesting that one of the clearest sections on teaching about the giftedness of the church is 1 Corinthians 12. But then Paul digresses a bit in 1 Corinthians 13 and says that 
If we don't have love, even in the discharge of the most miraculous gifts, we have nothing. So, does that characterize you? Is your maturity in Christ characterized by love? Is that what people would say about you? Now, as one of your shepherds here, I see it. You are characterized by growth, and you are characterized by a growth that is a loving growth. I see that here consistently. The past number of weeks has proven that. But we can't be lazy, and we've got to continue along that path, helping each other to continue to grow, that our Savior might be glorified and that we might love each other as we should. So I tell you today, I see so much good here, and I'm so grateful. But there's still a long way to go, isn't there? And by God's grace, we can trust Jesus, who is still ministering to the church to help us. I'll give you this last quote from John Piper, the guru, and we'll pray. Piper says, If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. That's good. I'll read it one more time. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Let's all join in that together. Let's pray. Father, we want this. We want this church to be characterized by increasing maturity, collectively so, all of us. And we want Jesus to get the glory from that. And we want others to join with us in this glad journey and all of us bound together by love. If we could ask one thing for this church, it's that we would grow into Christ's likeness for His glory and for mutual love. So we commit ourselves to that together today. Father, I'm so grateful that, that this characterizes this body of people. But we don't want to get lazy. We don't want to get arrogant. We only want that to grow and to increase. So help us. Help that to grow. Help it to increase. And I pray that you'd bring others into this as well. Because the mission of the church is to make disciples here and everywhere. So whether that's Vietnam or Dubai or Kenya, our own community here, we want to make disciples here and all over the world for your glory. So as we become more equipped and able to do this well, and all, of course, characterized and bound together by love, bring others into this fellowship. So, so help us now, we pray, to have eyes to see others who are not only in this fellowship but outside of this fellowship. They might speak the truth to them in love and, and see them come and see them grow, that the mission of our church will continue to expand, that our head, Jesus, might receive glory, and that your people might receive joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.